Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 770 with Russ Laraway. Russ has some great perspective on how to become the manager your team wants, as well as how to get your manager to behave more like the manager you want. So you'll learn one, the key to sharing feedback that actually works. Two, how to get your manager to manage well. And three, why you need to prioritize prioritization and how to do it. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP770. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP770. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the searchable full text transcripts, the gold nugget email summaries, and a whole lot more over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Russ's story. Russ has had a diverse 28-year operational management career. He was a company commander in the Marine Corps before starting his first company, Pathfinders. From there, Russ went on to the Wharton School and then on to management roles at Google and Twitter. He then co-founded Candor Inc. along with best-selling author Kim Scott, another guest with a great episode. Check that one out. Over the last several years, Russ served as the chief people officer at Qualtrics and is now the chief people officer for the fast-growing venture capital firm Goodwater Capital, where he is helping Goodwater and its portfolio companies to empower their people to do great work and be totally psyched while doing it. Over his career, Russ has managed 700-person teams and $700 million businesses, facing a vast array of leadership challenges along the way. He's the author of the book, When They Win, You Win. Being a great manager is simpler than you think. Big thanks to Russ for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Russ. Russ, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks a lot for having me, Peter. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Great. No complaints. Beautiful. Well, I'm eager to get into your wisdom, but first I think we need to hear your a story of fifth grade Russ winning a big prize. What's the story here? <laughs> yeah, I was watching cartoons after school one day on one of the UHF channels, which for those that don't know, your television, when it didn't have cable or Roku or Netflix, your television had maybe seven channels. So I was watching channel 48, and they said that if you could answer the following riddle, you could win a shopping spree at Toys R Us. And the riddle showed a picture of the Pink Panther. I don't know if you remember the Pink Panther. Yeah. And he was ice skating. And the riddle was, the Pink Panther is skating on a pink blank. 
And I was in fifth grade and I figured out that he was skating on a pink rink. I wrote that down, sent it into the TV station. And out of a couple hundred thousand entries, I was one of three kids who won a shopping spree at Toys R Us. Hundreds of thousands of people got rank. It didn't occur to me immediately. <laughs> well, I promise you, if you saw the picture, it would have been pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. A couple hundred thousand entries. I don't know how many of them were correct, but there were a couple hundred thousand em- entries. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And, and was that uh, apparently pretty memorable for you? Anything that you got there that was a really treasured item in your youth? Oh, yeah. Atari 400. Yeah, I'm, I'm super dating myself with this story. <laughs> I can, but, but in Atari 400, I was able to get a bunch of games. It was a little weird. You couldn't just run down an aisle. I think people imagine you can run down an aisle, just have your arm out and just scoop things into a cart, you know? So I won a one-minute shopping spree. There were two one-minutes and a two-minute. I won one of the one-minutes. And I actually had to go around beforehand and pre-stage the items that I wanted. I identified an Atari 400, and then I just pulled it off the shelf a little bit and, you know, some of the games and, and different things. So I, I just kind of focused. And you, you had to get an item and then run back to the starting line with each item. So you were doing like wind sprints, you know? Okay. And so that's how they, I guess they managed the cost a little bit. Because in the end, like the way I left Toys R Us that day was they rang us up and then Channel 48 paid for the bill. It was like 500 bucks. So, you know, you couldn't just, the, the instincts everyone has to optimize a shopping spree, they figured them all out and made sure that I, I had to identify the things I wanted beforehand. So, but the Atari 400, I mean hours and hours of fun with my friends playing all the games. And that's when the games were first starting to become higher quality at home. And so it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Atari was a big part of my youth. Mm -hmm. Well, knowing what you want in advance is going to be one of our themes here on sort of both sides of the management equation with your, your latest here book, when they win, you win being a great manager is simpler than you think. And we're going to talk about uh, how that's handy for more than, than just managers. So, so thank you for that. So, so lay it on us. For starters, what's a particularly surprising or fascinating discovery you've made about being a great manager? Yeah, it's actually that managers are systematically failing. And despite the mountains of content, books, podcasts, articles, they're not getting any better. And I defend this pretty heavily in the book. And by the way, I'm confident that your listeners aren't going to have a, a lot of disagreement with that idea. Most of them are having actually quite a bad experience with their managers, almost guaranteed. And so I had this idea, Pete. Hopefully you'll in- indulge me. I have a little fantasy. And the fantasy goes like this. Don't worry, it's G-rated. The fantasy goes like this. I get to sit down you know, a few of the luminaries who create content designed to help managers be better at their jobs. I get to sit them down each one-on-one, right? And I ask them a simple question. I say, how does your stuff, whether it was your book or your podcast or your article, how does your stuff contribute to making each manager in the world great? And then the fantasy continues. They're going to use a bunch of different words, but I suspect they're going to- Synergy, engagement. (laughs) So I suspect, yeah. Well, engagement's actually a really big deal. We can talk about that. It has a very strong relationship with business results, not attrition or retention stuff. That's a, a symptom, but actually like quota attainment or earnings per share, or operating margin. All these things have a very strong relationship with the psychological measurement, employee engagement, right? But let's come to that in a sec. What I think they'll say is something like this. It's akin to going through a buffet-style lunch line. And you're, in a, you're at a leisurely pace, you have your tray on the, on the rails there, and you're moving from left to right, let's say. And you take a little from one section, maybe we'll call that the Simon section. 
right? And then you move to the next section, maybe the Brene section. I don't know. And then we go to the next <laughs> section and maybe it's the Kim section and kind of off you go, right? And then you have on your plate, ideally a nutritious meal that allows you to solve all of your leadership problems. The problem I think though, is that for the typical manager, it doesn't feel at all like a leisurely trip through a buffet style lunch line. Instead, it feels like they're hogtied in the center of a middle school cafeteria while a multi-thousand person food fight is transpiring. Like broccoli hits them on the head, mashed potatoes sliding down their cheek. By the way, worse, even if they are going through that lunch line in a leisurely pace, they're not choosing the chicken breast and broccoli they need. They're choosing the cheesecake and cream puffs and chicken fried steak that they want. It's a process heavily fraught with bias. And so I think practically the proliferation of content about how to be a great manager is actually confusing managers. And what is missing from the entire corpus, in my opinion, is really the willingness to put the leadership standard you are prescribing, whatever author, podcaster, whatever, up to measurable account. Good leadership should measurably and predictably deliver happier employees at work and better business results. And ultimately, and that's kind of the book that I wrote. Well, it's exactly the book that I wrote. Does that help, Pete? Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Happier employees and better business results. And so when you say managers are failing, what are the sort of core evidence or proof points that you were, we're looking to, to say that's not happening? Yeah. So I'll use a little bit of research to make this point. First is that Gallup, this was actually a 2013 study from Gallup. It's called the um, State of Global Engagement. And I got to talk to the guy that did this study. His name is Larry Iman. And they found that managers explain 70% of engagement. And what that means is in very large data sets, when you observe a positive variance from the average in employee engagement, 70% of that variance is explained uniquely by commensurate variance in manager quality. So if engagement's higher, managers are better. If engagement's lower than the average in that spot, managers are worse. And so even if you want to arbitrarily discount that to 50%, I mean, not that we have the credentials to do that, but that still means everything else you're doing to try to affect employee engagement, this magical measurement from IO psychology that predicts results, everything else is worth less than half of the investments you make in your manager. 70%, less than half is 30%, the remainder. If we arbitrarily discount it to 50%, I don't know why, but we just do that. It's everything else you're doing is worth half of your investments in your manager. It's pretty clear managers are holding the keys, right? So in either case, the research finding or our arbitrary discount. But here's the thing that'll kind of blow you away. Global employee engagement is 15%, one five. It's percent, it's out of a hundred. In the US, by the way, it's twice as good and still terrible at 33%. And so you just have to put these two data points together. The manager drives employee engagement and employee engagement is terrible around the world. And it's pretty obvious that managers are systematically failing. Okay. Yeah, I, I hear you. From that data picture, there you have it. So then what are the primary drivers of the disappointing manager performance? That's a great question. What ultimately we uncovered, and this was sort of a call it a four-year-long research project while I was working at a company called Qualtrics. We were able to take a theoretical leadership standard. And really what I mean by that is a set of behaviors. And we were able to determine the degree to which those behaviors affect employee engagement. 
And so how we did that was every quarter when we measured employee engagement at our company, uh, we also measured something called manager effectiveness. And we did that by asking employees only, not 360, just the employees, the people who do the real work, the people we're all fighting to attract, develop, and retain, the people who are being led, we asked them if they observed these behaviors from their manager in the last quarter, specific set of behaviors, about 12 questions we would ask them. And it turns out when you ask questions like that in a certain way, you can actually measure basically how frequently the managers and individual managers are exhibiting the right behaviors. And then once we have that measurement, we can actually just drop it into like a statistical package and correlate it with both engagement and hardcore results like quota attainment, contract renewal, all these things. That's what we did. So a couple of the behaviors that are um, highly correlated with employee engagement, the most highly correlated behavior is actually specific praise for good work. And so the question might be, how often does your manager give you specific praise for good work? Very often, often, et cetera. And so we give the manager credit for either one of those top two choices, mm-hmm. very often or often is kind of how you do it. And so the reason why that's a big deal, though, is from a management perspective, it's not about being a cheerleader. Cheerleaders are on the sideline. Cheerleaders have pom-poms and they say, good job. And I think to people that sounds like praise. It's actually about coaching. Coaches are on the field. Coaches are right, or at least on the sideline. It's energetic. They're right there. And their entire job is to help people be more successful. And in the book, I call it continue coaching, which is being very specific and sincere about what people should continue doing so that they have the best chance of repeating the things that are working, right? So whether it's the work products they're producing, the customer service ticket, or the marketing copy, or the code they're writing as a software development engineer, that's the work. And the behaviors, you know, our core values that our companies often define the behavioral standards. And it turns out it's actually really important to be very explicit and clear about what people are doing well, um, because it gives them the best chance to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that sounds sensible. And, and then we, we say very often or often are those defined or that's in the, in the eyes of the employee being managed. Yeah. Eyes of the employee being managed. Yeah. They say, hey, I would call that often. I would call that very often. And that's, that's what we're running with. Yeah. That's the most important perspective. And it's irrelevant if the manager disagrees with the employee. If the manager's like, well, I do this all the time. If you're not doing it in a way your employees are hearing- you're actually not achieving. That's why it's so important to only evaluate the manager along these lines from the perspective of the employee. Yeah. And the employees, I, I assume, are, are, are genuinely reasonable. Like, well, no, I, I mean, I went four hours without you <laughs> giving me any specific praise for my good work. That's not very often. So, okay, well, that makes sense. Can you share with us a couple more sort of big drivers here? Yeah. The next biggest one is about soliciting feedback from the team. So, It turns out nobody wants to go to work and not be heard. And the idea here is, um, have you ever heard of the hippo? The highly impaid, important person? Yeah, highest paid, most important person, yeah. Or what I call the most dangerous person in the room. Good companies are trying very hard to limit the degree to which the hippo, the highest paid person in the room, the degree to which their perspective ultimately drives the decision or the outcome, you know, that we're trying to get to, because that person is usually actually pretty meaningfully disconnected from the facts on the ground. They're not usually in any real sense more likely to come up with the best idea. It's a very wisdom of the crowd kind of idea here. And so it turns out that 
a couple things become true when a manager regularly asks for input from people on the team. First is people feel heard. A big topic today is inclusion. If you want to talk about everyday inclusion, it's this one sentence. Every voice is heard, including my own. Every voice is heard, including my own. So the first thing we do is we now give, this is their team too. It's not just your team, Matt. It's their team too. So the first thing we do is give the folks on the team a voice in where we're headed, what we're trying to do. The second practical outcome is the results are better. The research is crystal clear. Diverse perspectives deliver better outcomes. And diverse, there's a lot of lenses, one of which is making sure every single employee's voice on the team is heard before we do something important. Every single voice is heard when developing our team's direction. And this gives people a degree of ownership over what the team's trying to do. And so Peter Drucker said, I I can't quote it exactly, but he said, you know, one of his landmark kind of insights was that people are far more likely to pursue a course of action enthusiastically when they have had a say in creating it. And so that's the idea here is managers that do a good job of inviting diverse perspectives, inviting challenges to the current state, challenges to their own perspective, challenges to their leadership standard, challenges to how they're behaving. Those teams thrive and those employees tend to be significantly more engaged than the teams where the managers don't do that. Okay. Well, that's good. Can we hire a third key driver here? Yeah. So another one that has a very strong relationship with engagement is actually the other side of the first one I mentioned, praise, which is actually improvement coaching. So if praise is about coaching people on what to continue, improvement coaching is about what to change with one simple idea. It's not to kick you in the shins. It's to help you be more successful. Pete, if you're the guy like me who starts off this conversation talking about this lunch line metaphor as a way to express the complexity being thrown at the average manager, then you have to be the guy who tries to simplify the job. And I've kind of done that work and I've come up with a job description that I believe fits every manager in the world from the CEO of Google or IBM all the way down to the frontline manager at Jersey Mike's and you know for the sandwich line. And that is your first obligation is to deliver an aligned result. The word aligned does a ton of work there. But aligned result meaning the results your team delivers are aligned with what the company's trying to get done. And the second is to enable the success of the people on your team. And success is short-term and long-term. In the short-term, your best tool for enabling their success is coaching. Both continue coaching so that they know what to repeat, but also improvement coaching so they know where they can be better. And again, you coach on work products. How could this code been a little tighter? How could the copy have been a little clearer? How could you have more efficiently or effectively solved that customer's problem? That's the work. And then the behaviors tend to be things like core values, like transparency or justice or one team. How well did you behave in alignment with our standards? And people are always running a little bit afoul of our standards. And it's okay. Like We're not perfect. We're all humans. And the best managers know that they need to not only offer continue coaching, but they also need to offer improvement coaching. And these two things together kind of round out, they round out our top three drivers of engagement. And it makes sense because they're your two best tools for enabling people's success, coaching them to be better and coaching them to continue the things they're doing well. All right. And so within this coaching, I would love to hear what what are some best and worst practices, you know, on both sides of that conversation? I guess one worst practice is just forgetting and, you know, not doing anything. But uh, additionally, what are some top do's and don'ts to be on the lookout for there? 
Yeah, let's let's start on the continue side. I, if it's okay, I want to tell you a little story. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I used to coach a little league baseball. And by the way, if anybody wants to become a better manager in the span of about four months, go coach youth sports. And before our season kicked off, we were impelled actually to go to a seminar by the Positive Coaching Alliance. This is a nonprofit, really good organization, works at the professional college, high school, youth levels. And in this seminar, it lasted all day, turned out to be a great use of a Saturday. The Positive Coaching Alliance prescribed five to one praise to criticism, five to one. Now it's important, so that'd be five to one continue to improve, right? What's important to realize is they didn't say infinity to one, which is what a lot of people hear when you say five to one. And they didn't say five to zero, like everyone gets a trophy. It's five to one. And so practically what I did with this was I started something called the book. It's a very clever name because it was literally a book. It was a lab book with graph paper where I would just write down the things the kids did well. It started with being on time to practice. We all know if kids late to practice, it wasn't probably the kid's fault, right? They don't have a driver's license. It's their parents' fault. So we didn't get on the kids too hard for that, but we certainly recognized the kids that were on time. It included counting loudly during stretching. And by the way, when that gave way to the kids like not really doing their stretches well, we got clear on the standard for a good hamstring stretch and we wrote that down. And this carries all the way through to fielding a ground ball correctly. Move your feet, center the ball in your stance, get your glove in the dirt, cover the ball with your throwing hand, move both hands the fastest line possible to your shoulder, step with your back foot, step with your front foot, fire over to first base, right? That's, that's how you field a ground ball and then throw somebody out. So what I would do is halfway through practice or at a time if I thought the kids were kind of lagging or they were losing focus or they weren't hustling as much, we'd call them in and we'd read from the book and I'd hold it up like Simba. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'd even sing like, you know, and they loved it, right? Eight, nine, or they were nine, 10 and 11 year olds. And I would just start reading off what they did well. So by name. By name, yeah. On time mm-hmm. to practice. And then boom, Miles, Starks, Caden, you know, Jimmy, Tara. And we'd just kind of go all the way down. And then we'd do it again at the end. And sometimes I'd reinforce it with a little article on the team website that night, right? And what's most interesting about this, I think, is that it's tempting to think, well, that's just something that works on kids. But they're just small people. You know, they're not some unique other thing. They're just small people. And The big insight here is for the workplace to translate this to the workplaces. Here's the mistake people make on continue coaching. They say, good job. That is not helpful. That's what you say to your dog. That's not what you say to the people you work with. Being specific about what was good is what really counts. That's what helps people know what is working. And in order to be specific, Pete, you have to be very clear about what the standards are around here. I couldn't have been specific about fielding the ground ball correctly if I couldn't communicate the actual standards for fielding a ground ball. So that's the biggest thing people get wrong. And after a while, people just tune you out. You sound like a cheerleader. You don't sound like a coach when you just say, good job, well done, way to go team. Enthusiasm's fine. It must be accompanied by specifics about exactly what was done well and why it matters. Okay, very good. And so then it's interesting. We talk about little people. The question I'm having here is, what is too small a thing to provide a continued coaching? Like, you showed up to work. I mean, I love praise and enthusiasm, but I just, I just want to make sure 
how small is too small? Or like, when does it veer into insincere or or patronizing or like, yeah, okay, dude, yes, I'm going to show up to work and I'm going to like check my email. Like, I feel weird that you are praising me for this. Out of worth the line. Yeah, totally. I mean, the answer lies in this five to one prescription. I think if we were to start offering continue coaching or praise in the way you just described, I think we very quickly get to like 500 to one. And so that's your guideline, right? And that gives you a feel for what's too big or too small. But here's a really simple prescription. And by the way, this doesn't, I don't, you don't even need to be a manager to use this. There's a phrase that is perfect for all of this. Do you know what I love about? That's the phrase. So what does that sound like? Do you know what I love about the way you ran that team meeting? Oh, do tell Russ. I'm all ears. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I love about the way you showed up in that team meeting? Do you know what I love about the way you created that analysis? I love the way you put in sensitivity and all the key variables because we don't know what the future will look like. And that allows us to have an understanding of what the boundaries might be. Do you know what I love about the way you ran that customer meeting today was how carefully you listened to their needs and made sure to tailor our message to it. These are the kinds of things that reinforce for people what they should be doing. Showing up for work, you know, like things that are table stakes, like you described and the kinds of things that if you don't do, you're just sort of get canned. Like, I, yeah, let's steer clear of those. They do. You're exactly right. They become patronizing. But the, the, the thing you have to remember is the people on your teams are doing a lot more well than they're doing poorly. And my evidence is you're not walking around firing everybody. (laughs) And so start calling those things out. And if you do things in general terms or unthoughtfully, you'll run into the risk you just described. If you do things carefully and thoughtfully, you not only help people reinforce what they're supposed to be doing, but you actually demonstrate that you recognize what they're doing. Like how many times have you heard people say that their boss has no idea what they do? It's like, it's an illness. But if you are regularly feeding back to people that you saw what they did, liked what they did, and why it matters, they can never hold the perspective that their manager doesn't know what they do. It's, so it's more those kinds of things. Yeah. Maybe you're a buffoon, but you know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can still be a buffoon, right? But So now you got me thinking about, I like how that five to one grounds us there in terms of the goods. So and I'm sure this is going to vary quite a lot based upon the nature of your relationship with the employees and the work and maybe your spans and layers. But if I'm thinking five to one, do you have a, a sense of the range of like, I don't know, the daily or weekly volume or monthly volume of coaching? Like, is there an amount that's uh, too little or too much? Yes, probably to both. Too little is easy. You know, here comes your six month review and you've received no coaching at all. Uh, that's too little. I actually think, I get this question about too much a lot, and I think it's actually a phantom problem. I think almost nobody's at risk of overpraising. I really don't. I know I know that in theory or conceptually or before they get into it, like as they listen to this prescription, because I get this question all the time, they believe there's this big risk of overpraising, and it's just very unlikely. But the mental model I'd use, Pete, so I mentioned six months, it's perfect, right? Six-month reviews happening. How often do you get your teeth cleaned, out of curiosity? <laughs> Not quite every six months. My my wife once tweeted, getting my husband to go to the dentist is like pulling teeth. <laughs> That's a great tweet. So once or twice a year-ish. <laughs> okay. It should be, I think ideally it should be four times a year. Is that true? That's how often I go, yeah. Wow. Well, the insurance only cover two. Maybe I've got that wrong. Let's just call it two, since that okay. seems to be what we're both settling on. I was on. like, you're an overachiever, Russ. <laughs> I'm a hyper... Well, I create plaque very, very well. I'm, I'm talented at making plaque. So I got to go, go a little more often. But um, beside the point, 
It's a long period of time. How often do you brush and floss, Pete? Oh, every day. Well, flossing is not every day, but brushing it definitely is. And flossing happens, you know, I don't actually have a good number for you. It's okay. More than I go to the dentist. I floss more than I go to the dentist, but not every day. Yeah. Yeah, all good. And so let's see what happens. That trip that you hate making to the dentist, does it go better or worse if you haven't brushed and flossed the previous time period? Oh, it's, it's definitely better when you do it. You know, you get less uh, disappointment, judgment, time scraping. <laughs> time scraping, which is, uh, we agree the worst. So this is the mental model for coaching. You want to be way more on a brushing and flossing cadence, you know, which might be, you know, a few times a week. Sometimes if the situation calls for it, we could be in for a couple a day. But you're on the field, right? Just imagine a, an athletic coach, if you can, if you watch sports or if you've played sports or if you're at least a little familiar with sports, hopefully that covers everybody. The coach, it's energetic and it's constant. And it's both things, you know, it's how you can be better, what you should continue. That was well done. Here's why. So it's more like brushing and flossing and less like going and getting the root canal, which by the way, the root canal is a practical, uh, it's on the same evolutionary path. If you don't coach every day, uh, you know, if you don't brush and floss every performance day, performance improvement canal, plan is coming your way. Coming your way. That's yeah. Right. Pip's coming your way. Mm. Oh, gotcha. Thank you. Okay. Well, so, so that I, I like that. So, so there is a wide range, but this is the ballpark we're talking about. And, and so, and I don't know if you know, it sounds like you do from Qualtrics and your, and your research, like, do we know roughly what proportion of managers fall into the camp of near zero coaching or don't know what their employees are doing? Yeah, I think at Qualtrics, our managers were, were very good because we, first, we selected them for their leadership disposition, not because of their tenure or because they were a good individual contributor. So we had a, we had a really positive selection bias that they were at least mentally aligned, uh, if not skillfully aligned with how we wanted them to lead. Then we explicitly taught them the leadership standard. So select, teach. Then we assess them from the perspective of their employees, and then we coach them, right? So that's stack, select, teach, assess, coach. So we could stack up a bunch of great managers. Our managers actually got measurably better over the four years I was there, and we added 500 managers. So our managers were, because of a very intentional approach, we knew that they were holding the keys. As a group of humans at the company, they were holding the keys, and we knew that if they led our people better, they would be more likely to create the circumstances under which people could do great work rather than destroy them. And so our data is heavily biased towards strong management. And the company's engagement was always high 80s, like, like extremely high. And the company's now on, by the way, six straight beat and raise uh, as a publicly held company, right? Our managers are creating the circumstances under which our people do incredible work that shows up in the company's results. So that was, that was Qualtrics. And it's, it's biased in, in a very positive direction. Yeah, if global engagement's 15%, and in the US it's 33, still really, really bad. This strongly suggests that the overwhelming majority of managers out there, they're not actively coaching their teams. They're not giving praise for good work. They're not engaged in people's long-term career aspirations. They're not crystal clear on exactly what is expected of the people on their team. They don't co-develop the team's direction with the team members. Remember, it's their team too. And so uh, I don't have a number for you, Pete, but I can tell you that the evidence, the engagement evidence strongly suggests most managers aren't even doing the basics. Okay. Well, so then I guess if listeners who are managers you know, start doing that, that'd be great. And those who are, are not yet managers and they say, hey, you're right, Russ, my manager doesn't know what I'm doing. I would like for that to start. 
any pro tips or how to broach that conversation or, or what could be done for the individual contributor who's in that spot? Yeah. So I have a little, I have a little, a couple prescriptions in the book that I think would work well here. The first one I have is called, I call it coaching the boss. And so for managers that, for example, don't proactively ask for input from their teams, recognizing this isn't really sustainable for anyone. Most people don't like to be on a team where their manager won't hear them. I created a little prescription for how to proactively surface some feedback to the boss. And, and again, usually more it's not hard to tell the boss when they're doing well. It's much harder to tell the boss when something on the team or the boss themselves is doing poorly. And so that four-step process is first is manage your risk. And what I mean by that is if you work for a retaliator, don't just end of process, you're done. Like if they don't like to hear, if they, if they tend to behave poorly after someone tells them things could be better around here, just polish up your resume, find a new boss. Life's too short. But most managers actually aren't retaliators. And so the first thing to do is what I call gather your boss's unique context. So a lot of times an employee is really sure they're right, and they're not. They have a valuable perspective that's actually likely closer to the facts on the ground, but being like right, possessing truth in the workplace is like a really high bar. Like my truth is not the truth is sort of the, the idea. And so instead of going in being sure you're right, the first step is actually to gather your boss's unique context, which means don't assume your boss doesn't know anything about the topic at hand. Instead, assume they know something and then try to pull that out of them. And what you might learn is your boss is not paying attention to this for really good reasons. You might learn that your boss is really blind to the problem and their, their sort of lack of attention is unintentional. You might learn that they know exactly the nature of the problem and they're just specifically deprioritizing it for following reasons. You can learn any of those things. But like before you go in there, guns ablaze and sure you're right, actually go in and find out what your manager knows and how important they think this thing is, right? And so that's, that's kind of the, the first step. Well, first step was manage your risk. Second is gather your boss's unique context. Now, with their context, if you still think it makes sense to share what you see, which is a reasonable thing to conclude, that's the evaluation you have to make. And so now you have to make a decision. Okay, I think I want to share this. And I think the third step is ask permission, which might sound like this. Okay, boss, I think I see things a little bit differently than you do. Are you open to hearing that? Very large percentage of the time when presented that way, they will say yes. If they say no, go back to the polish up your resume step and go find another boss because who wants to work for that person? That person's an ass clown manager for sure. And our mission here is to rid the world of ass clown managers. But most managers will say yes and actually mean it. And now that they've said yes, I believe step four is it's, it's Nike. You just do it. You, you got to do it. Now you've got an obligation. The team will be better. The manager will be more successful. You are likely to be more successful. I think at this point, you've gone through the steps carefully. Now you have an obligation, I think, to deliver the hard feedback to the manager. But you've gone about it in a very high quality way. You haven't assumed you're right. You asked permission, and now it's time to give the feedback. So that's a way to start a positive cycle with the boss where maybe your voice will get heard more often. Do that once or twice. Maybe the manager starts to come ask you because they know you'll shoot them straight. Maybe they start to ask other people on the team. You could actually jumpstart a culture of a manager listening to their people by running this process a few times with your manager. That's inspiring. Thank you. Uh, you've got a turn of a phrase that I must dig into. Uh, this is a bit of a swift transition here. Ruthless prioritization. Where does this fit into being a, a great contributor and manager and how do we do it well? Yeah. So 
I'm going to guess that a lot of your listeners are kind of high performing types. And I'm just, if you, if I may, I'm going to say your listeners are, it's a bunch of Lisa Simpsons. Okay. Yeah. Do you know, do you know who that is? Yeah, for The Simpsons, she was she was a high achiever in, in school and her activities. <laughs> Boom. Lisa Simpson, as you correctly indicated, is bright. She's polymathic. She's got a lot of interest, plays saxophone, like you mentioned, and she's ambitious, right? And so, you know, you know your listeners well. You allowed me to know them well before our interview. I walked away saying, that's a bunch of Lisa Simpsons. So that's one part of this prioritization problem. And, and I'll get to the problem in a moment. The second part is the environments we find ourselves in. I've been at large companies and small companies, hyper growth, not that. And what is common in almost every workplace I've been in is that there's some chaos. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing all the time. Things are moving very quickly. Pete, it turns out when you put Lisa Simpsons into those environments, it creates a prioritization problem. And what I mean by that is you have the kind of people who are interested and capable of doing a lot of things and, and an environment that has ostensibly a lot of things to do. And then those Lisa Simpsons might just try to do it all. And that is a very, very, that's a fast track to mediocrity. So prioritization is an exercise in subtraction, not addition. It is about learning how to say no politely, which, which I, offer, I offer a prescription for in the book. You have to say no politely. That's the key. And I have, this, I have this little inequality that I offer, which is three is greater than two is greater than four. Now, that's, does that sound right to you? Not from a strictly mathematical perspective, but I'm hearing you when it comes to prioritization. Keep going. If you have more than three priorities, you have none. And that's how I can say three is greater than two is greater than four. And that's for a day. And for a week, it might be five. I'll allow five. And so here's what this looks like practically. On Monday, the first thing you should do before you look at email, before you get involved in any projects, write down the five most important things you need to get done that week, given the goals that you, your OKRs or the goals you have for yourself that quarter. And then each day, ideally, including Monday, write down the three things you got to get done that day. Three things you got to get done that day. And they, these things can, can adjust a little bit. But again, given the goals you have for yourself that quarter. Try to be specific and use that to hold yourself accountable. Your priority list is not a task list. Those are really different ideas. Task lists are not prioritized nearly, nearly exclusively. Constrain to the three most important things you got to get done that day. And it's okay to check those. Hey boss, these are the things I think are most important for me to get done this week. Do you agree? And then give your, even give your boss maybe a chance to affect that list, right? Sometimes it stinks because they'll change it quite a bit and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but you can negotiate. It's better to have their buy-in, right, uh, than not. But that's what ruthless prioritization is. It's remembering that if you have more than three, you have none. Prioritization is an exercise in subtraction, not addition. And ultimately, it's about learning how to say no politely. Okay. And these three things, it's so funny. I can, I can bundle, I'm a master of bundling things big and small. So, so if I don't want to do the hard decision-making, the ruthless part of ruthless prioritization, I'd be like, oh, podcast stuff is one of my three important things today, but that's actually, you know, six things, you know, underneath there. So if any, any guidelines in terms of what constitutes a thing or how big or small a thing can or should be in a day? 
Yeah, great. Actually, really good insight. So what you just talked about is something that I cover a bit in the book, but there's I, I pull from another source, a guy named Dr. David Rock, who wrote a book called Your Brain at Work. And this guy is, um, he's got a PhD, but what he does is he consumes a lot of research about the brain, and then he smartly applies it to the workplace. And so he has a funny phrase called prioritize prioritizing. And that sounds silly, but it's actually quite useful. And the reason is because as you suggested, prioritization is a very prefrontal cortex intensive process, meaning it's very hard work. And if you don't know, your brain consists of obviously a number of parts, but two main ones. It's your sort of hindbrain, which is literally in the back. It's your brainstem, your amygdala, your, you know, the part that controls emotion and flight or flight type responses. It's strong, it's old, and it's efficient at processing glucose and oxygen. Your prefrontal cortex, really what makes us human, that's your problem solving, logic, reason. It's real small, sadly for us. It's weak and it's relatively new and it's weak in terms of processing glucose and oxygen. And by the way, they don't work together. So if you've ever said, I was so scared, I, I couldn't think, that's a, a true statement. That's your hindbrain overwhelming uh, your prefrontal cortex. But nonetheless, we only have so many repetitions for our prefrontal cortex in a day. People like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, wears literally the same outfit every day because he takes one decision off the table and he knows he's only got so many good decisions, which come from your prefrontal cortex available to him. Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, does the same thing. She wears these coral colored sweaters and blue jeans every single day with a white t-shirt to take one decision off the table. And so people are inclined to avoid the hard work of thinking about their priorities for a day. And so David Rock says, you actually have to prioritize prioritizing. So the first thing to do before we get into what's good and what's bad is you have to carve, like I used to carve out time. D do not schedule time. I'm an early bird. So I would carve out from 7 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. every day to make sure I did this well. And, and on Mondays, Mondays for the week and each day. And in fact, when we hit the pandemic, my team and I, we set up a, a process in the Slack bot where at midnight, whatever time zone you were in, the Slack bot prompted you for your top three priorities for that day. And we would each add them in so we could observe each other's priorities. These are meaningful chunks of work, right? So podcast stuff, you're right, would be a bad one. But a better example would be, you know, maybe last week on Monday, maybe one of the things you needed to get done was at least skim my book right? In preparation for the interview, right? That's a very tangible example. By the way, you know, the interviews coming next week, Russ is going to be on, you know, next Thursday. And so I've got to at least get through this book conceptually. And if not in detail, I, I'm letting you off the hook because I'm the slowest reader on the planet. And I know I couldn't pull it off in a week. Um, so that might be a very specific example, right? You know, you've got to interview me, you know, you've got to prepare and your number one your number one sort of tool to prepare would be the book, right? And so that's a very specific example. It contemplates sort of a, you know, what you're trying to get done in the future. That's a much more tangible. And by the way, it answers two really important questions. What and by when, right? The who is implied. An action item in life always answers those three questions. Who will do what by when? If you're writing your own priorities down or thinking about your own priorities, the who is implied because it's you. But what and when should be very clearly implied. And so these can be, um, you know, a catch-all like podcast stuff is not particularly useful. But the specific stuff you got to get done, given the interviews you got coming up the following week or the following month, whatever it is, those specific items, those are the things that you have to prioritize. And don't do another thing until you've knocked those most important things out. All right. Thank you. Well, tell me, Russ, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? 
Yeah, I think we covered it. It was a, it was a real good interview, Pete. Thank you. Well, thank you. All right. Well, how about a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? Yeah. Success comes when opportunity meets preparation. And the reason I like this quote is because you've heard people that are a little too self-assured, a little too I'm self-made, and not really accounting for the advantages they might have had in life. On the flip side, you hear people that are excessively humble. Like, oh, I just got lucky. Neither of those people is, is accurate, I think. I think that for all of us, it's important to be aware that our success is really a function of a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill. And you put in the work, you try to develop your skills, you try to be ready. And when those lucky opportunities emerge, you're a little more ready to seize them. And, and I think it presents a virtuous cycle. But this is it's what I hammer with my kids, actually. It's not your innate smarts. Calvin Coolidge has an incredible long quote on this. It's not your innate smarts. It's not just your talent. It's not your station in life. It's your grit, your resiliency, and your willingness to put in the work. And then it turns out the more work you put in, the, uh, sometimes the luckier you get. But still, there's a lot of luck involved. So success comes when opportunity meets preparation. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? My favorite book for a long time has been A Separate Piece by Jonathan Knowles. I had to read it in high school and it really moved me. And it's, it's, a, it's a dark story set at a private school. And the characters are really phenomenally well-developed archetypes. But for me, the book, it can't give it away, but the book shows very clearly consequences for small actions. There's a moment in the book where there's a very small action. It's well known in literature. It's when character A jounces the limb, that's the phrase used, and everything that happens from that point after is, is really dark and bad. And I always love that book because I think it's, it's important for many reasons. It's, you know, it's taught in, in many high schools for a reason, but this notion of the kinds of consequences and accountability that can be huge for even some of the smallest actions, I think it's an important thing to take away. So yeah, I've loved that book for a lot of years. And, and I guess now that I think about it, it's still my favorite. All right. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, pretty easy, Pete. www.whentheywinyouwin.com. Probably the easiest way to get in touch. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? So when I was at Google back in 2005, I noticed pretty quickly that we had a lot of really new, really young managers who were, you know, nearly by definition unskilled because they were new. There wasn't really a training program and they were, and they were young. We were growing so fast and giving people huge amounts of responsibilities. And I noticed that even when the managers would fail to exhibit some of the most basic behaviors that their teams still often delivered. And it occurred to me, the reason for that was our average talent level at the company was so incredibly strong that they would actually often cover up for the inadequacies of many of the managers. And I, I wondered, is that replicable? How valuable is it to know what to expect from a manager or what is expected of your manager by their manager and to drive your behaviors, even when the manager's not giving you everything you need or want, can you nonetheless figure out what is probably expected and deliver in alignment with those things and almost cover up for your manager's own inadequacies? I think it's a, it's a really interesting framing and there's lots of places you could go to learn what the kinds of things that might be expected of a manager. Like for example, when they win, you win is a great place I'd recommend to start. But I think like you're not a victim, you're a player, right? Victims are powerless. 
players are powerful. And if you're not getting everything you need from your manager and you're feeling like they're not invested in your success, you can actually kind of take the bull by the horns and, and change your trajectory with that manager. So that's, that's my last call to action. All right. Russ, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck and many wins. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Pete. Back at you. I really love Russ's take on that five to one ratio and that if you're praising every tiny little thing, it can look like a 500 to one ratio. (laughs) So to give praise that is meaningful and five times that of the critiques is handy and you can just sort of check yourself. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced is at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP770. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.